In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we have a general preface to this book with a description of the people it's to, who it's from, and our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Here now the reading of God's inspired word, Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, who or was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, 
and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from Revelation chapter 1. May the Lord bless us in it. Verses 1 through 8, we have the inscription stating the origin and design of the book with a blessing upon them that read, hear, and keep the things in this book. Verse 1 refers to this as the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is apocalypsis, apocalypse. Sometimes you'll read in ancient writings or older writings, they'll call this the apocalypse, and that's why. Now, apa means away from, and calupto is a covering or a veil that keeps things from being seen. So this is the unveiling, the uncovering, the apocalypse, the revelatio, the revealing or showing publicly what before was hidden. This revelation concerns Jesus Christ. And God gave this revelation unto Jesus Christ so that he could give it to his servants. And that's what verse 1 tells us, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. This is true both for the ministers of God and the people of God. These events are for the servants to know. And here, notice, these events would be completed shortly. Some make very much of this word shortly or at hand. But you'll recall when God said that the people would go into captivity in Deuteronomy 11:17, he said it would happen shortly. Well, it was hundreds of years before they were removed from the land. And even beyond that, hundreds more, or even a thousand more, until finally they were expulsed at last, never to return to that land. So, when it says things will shortly come to pass, sometimes it means things will begin the process that will not be completed for thousands of years, but the process will begin shortly. And that's what this book is about. It's not about the history of the world from the very inception or creation, though it alludes to it on occasion. It's about things that from John's perspective are there right now, things that are, and things that shall come to pass hereafter, things yet future. And we'll look at that a little more in a few moments. John bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. This could be a reference to the gospel, the record of the logos, the word of God, 
The testimony of Jesus Christ could be the epistles, and this could be what he saw, the vision that was given to him. Write these things that you see, in other words. Be that as it may, John was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. These are reliable truths. Verse 3 issues a benediction. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein. Now, many people believe that the book of Revelation is a curse. It's hard to understand. We'll never get it. And yet, what does God say about it? You are blessed if you hear this read. You are blessed if you hear with understanding. You're blessed to be reading, or I am blessed to be reading the word of God. And if we keep the things written in it, we are blessed. So we must, in order to be blessed understand what this treasure is that we are to keep fast because that's what that means keeping means putting it in a treasure chest and hoarding it up for yourself keep the things written herein i note that reading and hearing are ordinary parts of god's worship remember this is written to seven churches and he's going to speak to the stars which are the ministers or angels of the churches He's going to speak to the candlesticks, which are the churches themselves that hold up the light that shines from the ministers. There is a blessing in the reading and in the hearing of God's word, especially if we keep what the word of God says. Let us then read the word of God. Let us hear the word of God and let us read and hear in faith ready to keep. Verse four, to whom is this written? To the seven churches which are in Asia. And not merely to the seven churches, but through them to the church of all ages and all countries. It's as if, well, only in Turkey they can read the book of Revelation. No. God's intention was that through these seven churches in Asia, that would go forth to all the church throughout the whole world. Then notice verse 4. Who's it from? From him which is, and which was, and which is to come. Now, the word which is, or the words in the Greek Testament, which is, is ha-on, the existing one. And who is that? Well, in Exodus 3.14 in the Septuagint, I am that I am. He is called ha-on, the existing one. Him which is. The foundation and pillar of all that exists, in other words, is Jehovah. That's what that name means the existing one, I am. And then notice here, which was and which is to come. God is the eternal God. He has always been. He will always be. Some things are eternal because they have a point of starting in time and they go on forever as the human soul. Some things as God have eternity both in the past and in the future from our reference. God has always been God from everlasting to everlasting. Thou art God. Ha'on. You are the existing one. You are Jehovah. That's who's writing this letter. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now the spirit of God is one. He's not seven. But the reason why he is called seven is extremely important. And I want to point out that when you have the apocalyptic genre of literature like the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, what you'll often find is things that have an ordinary meaning 
are given a special meaning. Now, in the Bible, we often hear of three, the number three, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. You notice that God is often associated with what? The number three. How many persons are there in the Godhead? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So the three often represents God himself. Now what about four? How many corners of the earth are there? There are four corners of the earth. And when God at the first created the world, how long did he take? Well, six days and a day of rest, which makes what? Seven. So seven gives us the idea of God and his work with respect to his creation. God as he's working among his people, in other words. And also seven is the idea of completeness, the fullness of God interacting with his creation. So how many churches does John write to? Seven. How many spirits of God are there? Seven. Why? Because there's more than one Holy Spirit? No. Because there's one Holy Spirit who is operating through all seven churches in the fullness of his power, communicating according to his will as he proceeds from the Father and from the Son, one in his subsistence, as the Geneva notes say, but in his communication of his power and in demonstration of his divine works in those seven churches, perfectly manifesting himself as if there were seven spirits. That's the idea. The seven spirits of God. This letter is from Jehovah the Father, which was and is and is to come. This letter is from the Holy Ghost, the seven spirits. And who else? The first begotten of the dead, even our Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of the kings of the earth, not first begotten in time from the dead, but first as the heir who rose again to inherit all things, including the nations, Psalm 2 tells us. Ask of me and thee I'll make heir to earth and nations all. He is the prince of the kings of the earth, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is also called our Lord Jesus him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We saw this earlier concerning the love of Christ and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father because he is the head and we are his body and he is a king and he is a priest. What does that make us? Kings and priests unto God and his father. To him, that is to Christ or to the whole trinity, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All that was created was created by him and for him. He has absolute and everlasting dominion, glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the God-man, the mediator, the redeemer, the king and head of his church. And so, as John writes to these churches, God tells him, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ Behold, he says, verse 7, he cometh with clouds. Here is a vision, much like what the angels said to the apostles when they stood looking up into heaven. He shall come in like manner. He will come with glory in the clouds. So this is a foretaste of the final coming of Christ. Though it says he cometh right now, while John is writing these letters, 
This is a reference to a vision as the prophets often see. They'll see things as present, which are yet future. So in this case, every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him, whether Jews or Gentiles. There will be a universal judgment. Though they have long been dead, the Son of God will raise them from the grave so that they may stand for judgment. Let us be ready for death and for judgment. Let us be prepared for the majestic return of Jesus Christ who will come on the clouds and every eye shall see him. No one will be missing. Jesus says to John that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Christ is the eternal Jehovah. All things are from him and to him. That's the beginning and that's the end. The beginning is where things come from. In the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. N-R-K, ein halagos. In the beginning was the word, John 1. So here Christ says, I am the beginning and I am the end. All things are made for me and they will come back to me. He also says of himself, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Again, the same as verse 4, ha'on. I, Jesus, am Alpha Omega. I am the existing one, which is. And I was, and I am to come. Then verses 9 through 20, we have the glorious Lord's Day vision of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John when Christ revealed these things to him. John was exiled to the island of Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Though he was separated from his brethren, he was not separated from the love of Christ, you'll notice. It says... I was in the spirit in verse 10, not merely bodily worshiping God, but worshiping God in the Holy Ghost. The shell of lawful worship was filled with the substance of lawful worship. And when was he worshiping God? Well, verse 10 tells us it was on the Lord's day. Now, this word for Lord's is only used twice in the New Testament. Here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, where it says, the Lord's Supper. Now there is a word for Lord, kurios in Greek. And then there is what we call the genitive of possession, that which belongs to the Lord. So kurios means Lord, kuriu that means what belongs to the Lord or is from the Lord, the Lord's. Now, the Bible uses this word all the time. In fact, Revelation eleven fifteen says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. He owns them. They're his. That's the genitive of possession. The genitive of possession is the ordinary way to emphasize the owner who owns the thing. Those nations belong to Christ. When this word kuriakos is used, it is used concerning the thing that is owned, the thing itself. The day itself is the Lord's. The supper itself is the Lord's in a special, in a unique way. Well, doesn't God own all suppers? Doesn't he provide the food that we eat on a daily basis? Yes, 
Why then is it the Deipnakuriakon? Why is it the supper of the Lord? The Lord's supper, in other words. Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's a special religious technical term for those things consecrated to the Lord himself. So it's not so much that the day is the Lord's as all days belong to the Lord. It's that this is a holy day, the Lord's day. Not just the day that belongs to the Lord, but the day itself is sacred. Just as the supper itself is sacred, not like every other meal that the Lord also owns. And so we have here the kuriakos, the day that is uniquely and specially our Lord's. Now Freiburg, again, referring to this word kuriakos, says it is a religious technical term. So then it is a day, a day devoted to God, just as the supper is a supper devoted to God. Now what do we remember in the supper? Well, we remember what? His death until he comes again. We remember his body broken for us, his blood spilled for us. What do we remember on the Kuriakos day? What is it? What happened on that day? Why is it a sacred day? What did the Lord Jesus do upon that day? He rose from the dead. He overcame death. So on this special day that belongs to him in a separate way, we have the Lord's day. I note then this doctrine, as there is a separate meal sanctified to the memory of Christ's death, so there is a separate day sanctified to the memory of Christ's resurrection. As there is a Lord's supper, so there is a Lord's day. And it's not just the Lord's like everything belongs to the Lord. It's that the day itself is sanctified as the bread and the wine themselves are sanctified, as the supper is sanctified. Now, there was in old times the Jewish Sabbath, You'll remember God set an example in creation. What did he do? He worked for six days and then he rested on the seventh. What comes first? Works. What comes second? Rest. Now the Lord's day when Christ who is our life appeared, when did he rise from the dead? On the last day of the week? No, he rose on the first day of the week. So then we rest first and work second. Do you see the difference? In the covenant God made with Adam, works come first and then rest as the reward for your labors. What about the gospel? What about the Lord's Supper? What about the gospel that we have received? Do we work first and then receive our rest? No, we rest first and then we do our works because we've rested in Christ. This is the Lord's day. This is why we do not observe the Jewish Sabbath. It was abrogated by our Lord Jesus Christ who lay in the grave on that day and rose again on the first day of the week. Or as the apostles call it, the first of the Sabbaths. That's what they call it literally in the Greek New Testament. Christ rose on the first day of the week. And you will notice in the book of Acts and in the epistles, when did they gather for worship? On the Lord's day. When would the apostles not travel? On the Lord's day. When was John worshiping God in the spirit and receiving these visions? On the Lord's day. 
let us then be in the Spirit of God on that day, uniquely sanctified and devoted to the memory of Christ, not merely partaking of the husks of worship, the external part, but being filled with the truth of God's word, with wills ready to hear and receive and to do his will, with affections drawn up to where Christ is seated, where he rose and ascended at God's right hand. If you would like to study this matter further, I recommend Sabatum Redivivum, or the Sabbath Revived by Caudry and Palmer, two Westminster divines dealing with the Lord's Day. What you will find is, from the very earliest fathers of the church, they all celebrated the first day of the week. And anybody who observed the Jewish Sabbath was anathema to them. Why? Because they're denying the resurrection and the gospel. They're saying that you're justified by works. They're saying that works come first and rest comes last rather than rest first and works last. Okay, so on the Lord's day, John heard a voice that was great as of a trumpet. Now again, in apocalyptic literature, things are not described according to their ordinary description. Have you ever heard a person with a trumpet voice? You ever seen a person with feet that are like burnished brass on fire? You ever seen anybody with flames for eyes? No, because it's not a physical description of the body of Christ or of the voice of Christ. These are mystical descriptions he's giving us, representing specific things we can know from elsewhere in Scripture. What does the trumpet do? Calls to war, doesn't it? What else does it do? Calls to judgment. So here the voice of Christ is a kingly voice that calls forth for his warriors and for judgments. This is the voice of a great king in this vision. And he repeats in verse 11 that he is the alpha and the omega. He's not, he's not saying, uh, by the way, I'm the letter alpha and I'm the letter omega. Again, when we read mystical language, when we read sacramental language, when we read apocalyptic language, what do we find? One thing is put for another. What does alpha mean? The first. What does omega mean? The last. So what is he saying? I'm alpha and omega. I'm two Greek letters. Of course not. He's saying I am the first. I am the last. What is represented by those signs, those letters? Me. I am represented by them. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. This is his commission. He sees then seven golden candlesticks. Now just to clarify something, the candlestick is not the candle. It is the thing that holds the candle up. They would have two parts. The candle would ordinarily be like a gravy boat in that sort of shape. And they would set that on top after they had filled it with oil, they would set it on top of the candlestick and light it, and then it would burn, and the oil would continually flow down into where the oil was, were being burned. So when he says these are candlesticks, he's not saying they're the light. They are the things that hold the light forth. They are the pillar. They are the ground. In other words, the church is the pillar or the candlestick, as we'll see in verse 20. These seven golden candlesticks are seven churches, valuable because God has infused value in them by having them redeemed with the precious blood of the lamb, not with gold or silver. But notice they are gold in this mystic language. They are valued by God. So there in the midst of those seven candlesticks is one like unto the son of man. 
Do you recall in the book of Daniel, the prophet? He saw one like unto the Son of Man, who went to the Ancient of Days. And much of the description here is the same, both for the Ancient of Days and for the one like unto the Son of Man in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Christ dwelling among his visible church, clothed with a garment down to the foot. In the ancient world, if you were a king or a priest or some kind of ruler, you would have garments all the way down to the ground, representing that you had authority, that you had some kind of position or some kind of status. So Christ clothed. Now we find in, Revel or in Daniel that he had a linen garment. Here it does not name what type of fabric. It just says it was a garment. He's also girt about the paps with a girdle, something most precious, a golden girdle, the threads made out of gold. Very valuable. We see this also in Daniel 10:5. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. Now we saw this in Daniel 7:9, the ancient of days. He had a head of hair, white as snow. Now, what do you think when you see a man with white hair? What do you think? Well, he's ancient. He's old, isn't he? When you see a man with dark hair, what do you think? Well, he's young. So God is saying, this one is like the ancient of days. He is old, in other words. He is revered. Remember what you're supposed to do before the hoary head or the white head. Rise up out of honor for him. So here, he is to be honored. He is the ancient of days. His eyes as a flame of fire. Daniel 10, verse 6. What does, what does the flame do? burns away the dross, devours the stubble, judges the wicked, purifies the righteous. Here is Christ with these eyes of fire. Again, it's not describing the color of his eyes because honestly, that doesn't matter. The Bible never records it. But here it gives us an apocalyptic vision of Christ. Eyes as a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. We saw this in Ezekiel 1.7 and Daniel 10.6. The brazen altar was where the fires of judgment consumed the sacrifices. So brass withstands the judgment. Christ made it through the judgment against him. His voice as the sound of many waters. We've seen this in Ezekiel 43 verse 2. The God of Israel speaking there to Ezekiel the prophet, his voice was as the sound of many waters. I note then this doctrine. Christ is the eternal God, co-equal with the Father, as well as being true man with a true body and a reasonable soul. He is fully God, co-equal with the Father. This is why in this passage, what John is doing is he's drawing back on images that we've seen before, apocalyptic images, both from Daniel and from Ezekiel. Those in Daniel and Ezekiel refer to the eternal God, Jehovah, the ancient of days, the God of Israel. He takes those descriptions and distills them down to Christ himself. And thus, let us honor the Son as we honor the Father. Let us bow before his eternity, his wisdom, his majesty, his justice. Let us hear his mighty voice. That's what the vision is saying. He is eternal with a white head of hair, with wisdom as an old man has. He has majesty. He has this robe that flows down and golden girdle about him. 
He has feet that have survived the flames of judgment. He has eyes that judge his people as well as the wicked. And so God is teaching us things about his son that we ought to honor him. And what does the son of God have in his right hand? Seven stars. These are the angels or the messengers of the churches, as verse 20 tells us. These are the ministers of the church, according to the Geneva notes. In fact, in Malachi, in the law of God, Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger. The word is angel there in the Septuagint as well as in the Old Testament Hebrew, it's a cognate word. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Paul said he and his fellow companions were the messengers of the churches and the glories of Christ. So here he holds the ministers of the church in his hand. He is the king and head of the church. He has appointed them to be the light of the world, to shine forth the truth of the gospel. And out of the mouth of Christ proceeds a two-edged sword, the word of God, the scriptures of God, faithfully preached, delivered by the apostles in writing. And at these seven churches, these stars are to shine this light and to preach this word. The logos, the essential logos, has the word inscripturated on his behalf. And then the principal recipients of this being John, and the stars. Now notice the countenance of Christ. We'll look at this in Psalm 67 as well. It was as the sun that shineth in his strength. What does the sun do to shadows? Well, it drives them away. And what are the shades? Do you know that the Bible's word for the wicked and the damned is the shades? Sheol, the place of shades and forgetfulness, the mists of darkness that Jude talked about. What is that? It's the wicked. What does Jesus do? He drives the wicked away, as we'll see throughout this book. What else does the sun do? It nourishes life. It brings forth healing. It causes things to grow and nourishment to come out of the earth. He is the son of righteousness, risen with healing in his wings to bring health and salvation to his people. And when John sees this glorious mystic vision, what does he do? He falls on his feet as one dead, struck with the glory of God. And yet what does Christ do? Stamp upon him and crush him? He puts his hand upon him and says, Fear not, I am the first, I am the last. It is of me and it is to me all that I shall reveal to you, even the glory that you behold, John. This is my glory. Remember, John, what did he do? He leaned upon his bosom. Could he do that any longer? No, he falls at his feet. He sees the glory of his Godhead coming through in this vision. Christ, again, tells him not merely that he is the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Remember, the living one is God himself, the true and living God. I am he that liveth, he says, but know this, though I died, I have been raised again. I am fully God. I am fully man. I am the mediator. And guess what else? If you were to fear hell, if you were to fear death, I have the keys, John. I open the door. I close the door. <coughs> 
I am the master of all that men fear. What do men fear? Do they fear death? Do they fear hell? You bet they do. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, though, do you need to fear hell and death? No, he's got the keys. That's what he's doing for John to raise him up and strengthen him. Know, John, that I rule over whatever you fear. Satan's power has been nullified. The strong man has been bound. I am spoiling his goods. That's what he's saying. But notice, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? If you're the adversary of Jesus Christ, what can he do? Open the door to death and hell and cast you in body and soul. Jesus said, I'll show you who you should fear. Not those that destroy the body, but the, he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Let us then fear the Lord Jesus Christ as John did. Verse 19, write these things which thou seest or thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. This book then concerns the present state in John's day, and it concerns all those things that would happen after John's day until what? The consummation of the ages and the life everlasting. That's what we find in chapters 20 and 22. So what may we reasonably assume the book of Revelation describes? Well, the whole history of the last days. Not just the last days as premillennialists believe, like right now. Wait, no, no, right now. No, not now. Right now. Oh, no, no, now it, no, now it is. And they've been doing that to people for how long? Since the late 1800s. Now's the, now's the last days. Well, you were always right and always wrong. The last days started with Christ rising from the dead, and they go all the way till the second coming of Christ. Those are the last days. So if you told people we're in the last days, you were right. But you were also wrong because you told them this is what this means by the last days or these times. No, it doesn't. It means what is now, what is occurring at this time, John. And now I want you to tell them all those things that will unfold hereafter. James Durham notes the following. <clears throat> he says, which must be hereafter. These point at the story and state of the church from John's time to the second coming of Christ. For from the rise and beginning of the church here, it ends not till it brings the church militant to glory and puts the wicked in the bottomless pit. Chapters 20 and 22. I mark it because it serves to be a key to the rest of the story. I notice then this doctrine that Revelation concerns the whole history of the church from John's day until the end of the world. Some would resolve all that John says up to 70 AD. So some say, well, he wrote this in 67. So everything he's talking about is a three-year span. <clears throat> That's called preterism. Also, full preterism is heresy because it denies a future resurrection. It's not even Christian. It's heathen. But some will say partial preterists, all that Revelation talks about is just those three years. Is that creditable? Is that even what he's saying? Well, he said it's all going to happen. It's all at hand. It's all going to happen pretty soon. Yeah, well, we already saw the Bible uses that language of things that happen hundreds or thousands of years later. But the inception begins right away. 
So here in this book of Revelation, these things are not merely past, and they're not all future as the premillennialists believe. Well, Revelation just concerns after the pre-trib, mid-trib, sub-trib, partial trib, mid-trib, here a trib, there a trib, everywhere a trib, trib, and then there's going to be the seven years and they'll rebuild the temple and then this will happen and that'll happen and Jesus will come back and then there'll be a sort of resurrection, maybe another resurrection and a third resurrection and then, and then there'll be the judgment at the end and everybody has to have a chance and everybody gets to be raised again who didn't believe. Okay, whatever, no. This describes from John's day to the end of the world and every successive age since then. That's what he says. Let us then be blessed by reading and by understanding. And as we go through this book, let us see the unfolding of God's purposes for his people from the days of John until the consummation of all things. And thus far, the exposition of Revelation chapter 